For I received from the Lord what also handed to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, that is for you. That this is my body, that he broke it and said, This is my body, that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after, after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he returns. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm teaching on Wednesday night class here at our church, part of our Wednesday night live uh, programming. It's kind of kind of an extension of what we're talking about here in in worship. Um, you know, these these last few weeks we've been we've been talking about what we believe here at our church. We're calling it St. Matthew's 101. You've heard me say this several times. We're talking about our doctrine, what it is that we believe, our beliefs. That is our doctrine. But then. We live out our doctrine through our values. So what we believe is doctrine, how we live our values. And our values must find their root in our doctrine. That's, that's how that works. So on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about this, but going a little bit deeper, you know, kind of a little bit more in-depth on Sunday sermon. Uh, not really on Sunday sermon, but more on the concept. So I wanted to kind of talk this morning real quick as we start that's what we talked about last week in our class. So if you're in my Wednesday Night Live class, you're allowed for the next five minutes to take a nap. Just come back in about five minutes. If you're watching online, you, you, know, you can take a little five-minute nap and we'll come back together. One of the things in this class we talked about in our first week are the things that all Christians hold together. Because one of my firm beliefs is that we Christians have much more in common that we do that, differ, that differ, differentiate us. We have a lot more commonalities, a lot more things we agree on than things we disagree on. So something I told my class, and you've even heard a little bit of this in the sermons, are there are, I believe, three things that we, that all Christians hold together. Now stay with me, because you're not going to agree with some of this at first, but I want you to stay with me. I believe there are three things that all Christians hold together. These three things are the creeds, the, uh, the scripture, and the sacraments. Let me tell you what I mean by that. All Christians hold to the common teaching of the creeds. Even if you're part of a church that may not confess the creeds in worship or may not say that you believe in man-made doctrine, if you look at what the creeds say, the creeds basically just give you basic Christian doctrine. That's all it is, just basic Christianity one-on-one. Every church is going to hold to the creeds, that the hold to the teachings of the creeds. Now, we may argue about which ones we should say, who should say them, when they should be said, should we even say them at all. Sure, we can argue about all that. But in terms of the core teaching of the creeds, all Christians are going to hold together on the core teachings of the creeds. Same thing about Scripture. Every Christian agrees the Bible's a big deal. Now, we may not agree on how to interpret it or what it means or what translation to use or who should read it or when it should be read or any of that. But every Christian is going to agree that the Bible is a big deal. We hold that in common. We all agree that the Bible matters. 
So we all agree that the teachings of the creeds matter. We all agree that the Bible matters. And lastly, we all agree that the sacraments matter. Now, in, in this case, and we're going to unpack this in a second, by sacraments, I'm talking of the, the, what are often seen as the primary two, baptism and communion. Our Catholic friends have seven sacraments. Our Episcopal and Anglican friends have about five. Protestants have about two, baptism and communion. Now, here's the deal. Once again, we can argue about what we call them, sacraments versus ordinances. We can argue about who can do them. We can argue about who can receive them, when they should be done, what they mean, how it happens, when it happens, where it happens, who does it. We can argue about all that. I'm not saying we agree on all this. But what I'm saying is that all Christians are going to say, yeah, baptism's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, communion, it's a big deal. Once again, not saying we agree on the specifics of what it means, but every Christian's going to say, yeah, I agree with the basic teachings of the creeds. That's orthodox theology. Outside of that, it's considered heresy. The basic teachings of the creed. I agree that scripture, it's a big deal. And I agree that baptism and communion, the sacraments, are big deals. Yeah, we would all agree on that. Now, we can argue about the rest of it, but we're going to agree on those things. You know, 99% of us. So, today, we're going to talk about the sacraments. And we're going to talk about, in our tradition, and I'll, and I'll be very clear, the word sacrament, y'all remember, anybody remember off the top here, you know the capital city of California? Sacramento. Sacrament. The word sacrament comes the word mystery. I'm going to explain to you, and we're going to talk today specifically about what our church believes. A church in the Wesleyan tradition believes about the sacrament. But let me be very clear. This is a mystery. And so different churches are going to disagree on these things. And that's okay. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to explain in some ways the mystery of God. Explain in our human language, which always fails, what is happening in these divine things from God. So, for instance, our Catholic friends, they're going to have a different view on the sacraments, a different view on communion. Cool. That's fine. Doesn't bother me. There's much we can learn. Our Baptist friends are going to have a different view on the sacraments. Cool. That's okay. We can learn from each other. It's always healthy to know specifically what your local church believes and teaches on these things while also giving room to learn from others who are part of the Christian family about what they believe and how we can find commonality and how we can learn from each other in the mystery of God. But we're going to talk today specifically about the two sacraments that our church holds, communion and baptism. And y'all, here's the thing. There's nothing in my life, there's nothing in my life that have formed me like communion and baptism. I have been moved more by communion and baptism than by any sermon I've ever heard. Those two things have impacted my faith more than any sermon I've ever heard, really any worship I've been to. Because Jesus commands us, if we look in the Gospels, Jesus never commanded us to go forth and really be preachers. 
But he said, take, eat, this is my body. He said, go forth, make disciples, and baptize. And there have been times that I have taken the sacraments, communion and baptism, where I've been taking communion or remembering baptism, where I, in fact, communion. If any of you have done Crisillo or Emmaus, don't spoil it for the rest of those who haven't yet. But if you've done that, then you know that communion within that three-day weekend is an impactful, moving thing that speaks to the core of who you are. And my favorite church service of the year is always Monday, Thursday. Monday, Thursday is always my favorite church service because I saw a preacher named Bill Poole do Monday, Thursday service at my little bitty Methodist church out in the the sticks of Pike County. And I saw Monday, Thursday happen, and I heard the story of Christ's sacrifice. And I remember one time being so moved by, what I, by, by the retelling of Jesus' sacrifice and coming and taking communion and hearing that I'm forgiven, that I remember coming to the altar at Johnson Chapel and just breaking down in tears at the overwhelming reality of God's sacrifice for me and of God's love for me. I know Tim always cries after 5.30 on Sunday because he's heard my sermon three times. His eyes are always full of tears at that, but I think it's for a different reason than the tears I had in my eyes when I became aware in that moment of the beauty of communion and what it meant to know that Christ died for me and has forgiven me. I have been more deeply moved by communion than I have by any other event in my Christian life. And likewise, with baptism, I mean, there's nothing I love more than what we get to do this morning. But if you go and Google the phrase, worst youth minister ever, you're going to see my face. Because when I was youth minister at Raymond United Methodist Church out of college, y'all, I, I was bad at it. And that, that's not false humility. That's not me being funny. I failed. I was bad. The church knew I was bad. Preacher knew I was bad. And I knew I was bad. And one of the cool parts about working at the church is you have a key to the sanctuary. And there was one night, Thursday night, after I got off work at the Baptist bookstore, I went to the church, and I knelt at the altar, and I started praying, and I started crying, like, Lord, please release me from this call to ministry. Lord, please release me from this. I can't do it. I'm a failure, Lord. You've got to release me from this call because I can't do it. I sat at that altar, and I prayed for God to release me from the call to ministry because I was that much of a failure at it. As I was praying there at the altar at Raymond United Methodist Church, in that moment, I saw the light from the moon land upon the baptismal font in that sanctuary. And I heard God say to me that my greatest calling was not to be a success in ministry. My greatest calling was to know that I was his child. And I remembered that through my baptism, I had been marked as his very own. And I was going forth to do ministry, not in my name, but in his. And I, in that moment, I remembered God's marking of baptism. And I fully believe that if not for that reminder of my baptism in that moment, I would have left the ministry at age 22. 
There has nothing that has marked me in my ministry and in my life like the sacraments. They are more impactful to me than any sermon I've ever heard or any sermon that I've ever preached. So what we're going to do these next few minutes is I'm going to explain to you what our church believes specifically about communion and about baptism. But like I said earlier, I want to be very clear. This is the, the mystery of God. So just because we believe this doesn't mean that our friends and other denominations are wrong necessarily. But this is what we contribute to the overall body of Christ through our beliefs. So let's talk quick about communion. Um, communion is, is, is awesome. Um, and what we believe, what we believe that happens in communion, and I'm going to kind of paint with broad brushes here. Our church, you've probably heard this phrase, the real presence of Christ. Okay. Churches that are more connectional, more liturgical, more high church, Methodist, Catholic, Episcopal, Lutheran, Presbyterian, we, we talk more about the sacraments and the grace. We really emphasize the grace given in the act. And churches that are, that are more local, Baptist, uh, Pentecostal, Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, tend to focus more upon the obedience of the individual we believe in communion. While our Catholic friends believe in communion, that when the elements are blessed, that they become, the word is transubstantiated. They become the literal body and blood of Christ. As Methodists, we don't, as Wesleyans, we don't believe that. But we do believe that Christ is really and fully present in the communion meal. So in just a few minutes, we're going to do communion. And I'm going to pray a prayer of invocation where I'm going to say, pour out your Holy Spirit upon these gifts of bread and wine and make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. May your, by your spirit make us one with each other. We want to minister to all the world until Christ comes to the final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. All honor and glory is yours, almighty Father, now and forever. I'm going to pray that prayer. And in that moment, the elements have been consecrated. Now, we believe in the Wesleyan tradition that those elements remain still just a wafer and, a, and juice. They're not changed in their makeup. But we believe that when they're blessed and we receive them, that Christ is really and fully present within us in that moment, in that meal, through the Holy Spirit. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ is really and fully present in the same way that he was really and fully present with the disciples on that last supper meal, he is really and fully present with us. These elements bring that presence within us. So they remain the same, but Christ is really and fully present with us in that moment. That's what we believe. That is our Wesleyan tradition and our Wesleyan teaching. I said other traditions have different perspectives. And that's cool. But I want you to know what we believe in this moment. And I also want you to know the one thing that is distinct to Methodism. One thing that is distinct to our tradition that no other tradition really shares. Lots of traditions have what's called the open table where everyone's welcome, you know. And you've heard me say, after communion, after I do the prayer, I'll say this table doesn't belong to me or St. Matthew's or any religious group, but this table is Christ's table and all who, who want to come to Christ's table are welcome. We believe in the open table. But let me tell you what is a Methodist distinctive. In fact, I've often said this. If you want to make an old school Methodist fight with you, don't serve them communion. They'll get angry. <laughs> we, 
We believe in the open table, and we believe in it so radically because Wesley understood communion as what he called a converting ordinance. Wesley believed you could be lost. You could not know Jesus as Lord. You could come to the table and experience the real presence of Christ in that moment and become converted and accept Jesus Christ as Lord in that moment. Wesleyans view communion as actually a means of evangelism in a way that is distinct to the Methodist movement. That is not something really any other church shares. That is a distinctive in our theology, that we believe that when you encounter the real presence of Christ in that moment, you can accept Jesus Christ as Lord in that moment and become converted through communion. Wesley called it a converting ordinance. So we believe it has an evangelistic means as well. So in just a few minutes, we're going to take communion. And we believe that in that moment, Christ will be really and fully present through the, through the Holy Spirit in that moment when we receive communion. That's what we believe about communion. I'm going to talk to you real quick about what we believe about baptism. We just witnessed, we just witnessed an infant baptism. The, 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 the definition of a sacrament it is, an outward, it is an outward sign of an inward and spiritual grace. It's something we do physically, outwardly, that emphasizes or shows an inward and spiritual thing. That's why with baptism and, frankly, with communion, we don't get caught up in a certain mode for baptism. Methodists will, we will sprinkle what we did this morning. We will pour. We'll immerse. I'll chase with a water hose. I don't care. Whatever you need, I'll do. I don't care. With communion, we'll do our pre-sealed little glasses. We'll do the wafers. We'll do the nasty little oyster crackers. We'll do Hawaiian bread. We'll do common cup. We'll dip. We'll, we'll do like For us in our tradition, it's not about the correct action of obedience. It's about the God who is present in the action. It's an outward sign of an inward grace. The mode in our tradition doesn't matter as much about the inward grace happening. That's why Methodists will baptize in in any of the, the valid methods. Baptism, sprinkling, and pouring. We don't get caught up in method. We get caught up in what's happening within the heart of that moment. My church in Petal, for whatever reason, God moved there. And we had a lot, of, a lot of baptisms. A lot of folks were getting saved. A lot of folks had never been baptized. And so, I mean, one year, and, a lot, and this community was a very Baptist community, a lot of unchurched people. So when folks got saved, they wanted to be immersed. So one year, I had 50 immersion baptisms in that church in one year. We had so many immersion baptisms that I had to, we had to build, we built a baptistry. We built a rolling portable baptistry that we'd roll out to baptize with, then roll back up. And one of the funniest things ever, one of my good friends was pastor at one of the large Baptist churches in Hattiesburg, and they had multiple campuses. And one day he called me up because they, wanted to, they were having baptism services across the, across the city, and he wanted to use our baptistry, our portal baptistry. He called me up and said, could he borrow it? I said, Jeff, this is the first time in church history the Baptists called the Methodists to use their baptistry. <laughs> it's never happened before. So we, we don't focus so much upon the outward action as much as we do on the inward heart. And so within that, baptism is about God's marking of us, whether it happens as an adult, whether it happens as a child. It's about God's marking of us. And the reason why we baptize infants like you saw this morning is this. Um, we saw the biblical story, the Philippian jailer. That, that's a biblical foundation for the concept of infant baptism because it says in the text that the jailer and his entire household was baptized. 
that would have most likely included, have, have included children. But the, re, the, the, the theological foundation of infant baptism is this. Uh, you go back to the first century of the church, and you begin to see in the first century of the church, the first generation of Christians begin to marry, and they begin to have children. And the question is, well, what do we do with these children? So the church prayed about it. And the church realized that if you go back in the Old Testament, you look at God, the fact that God's a God of covenant. All of Scripture is a story of God's covenant to us. God is a God of covenant. So you look in Scripture, and every covenant has with it a sign. So the covenant of Noah was the sign of Noah's covenant. You know, the rainbow. God set in the cloud a bow. It's a sign of the covenant. Okay? The great covenant of the Old Testament was the covenant that God made with Abraham. And what was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham? Circumcision. That was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. And who was circumcised? Male children on the eighth day. They were circumcised. So if you go back and look at the Old Testament, did every circumcised male in the Old Testament correctly follow God's path and God's law? Have you read the Old Testament? No. <laughs> no, they did not. Many circumcised Jewish men and men, they, they, they were circumcised, they did all the right stuff, and they still did not follow Yahweh. So in the early church, they said, well, we are under the new covenant of grace. And what is the sign of the new covenant? What's the sign of that covenant? Baptism. And just as children in the old covenant were circumcised to show they were part of the old covenant, children in the new covenant were baptized to show they were part of the new covenant. And just as circumcised children in the old covenant did not necessarily mean that they would follow Yahweh, baptized children in the new covenant don't necessarily follow God. As I, when we baptized my heart this morning, I, I said the Jesus that we live out will be the Jesus that one day she will confess. So we've got a responsibility as her church family to model Jesus for her. We've got a responsibility to teach Jesus for her. These children, when they're baptized into our church family, we are taking on a huge responsibility to model, to teach, and to point them to Jesus. Baptism doesn't save you. In that moment, Baptism shows you as one who has been marked with the grace and love of Christ. Baptism shows you're part of our family. You're part of our community. You're part of us. You have a place and a home and a family here. Baptism is about God marking us as his very own. An outward sign of an inward grace. We take communion, these elements, outward sign. Grace is conferred to us, and we grow in holiness. An outward sign of baptism, we are marked as God's very own. I think the notion of baptism can best be seen in the great theological work, Toy Story. If you remember that movie, the first one, it's all about the fact that, uh, the fact that uh, Buzz thinks he's a real 
Buzz Lightyear, not a toy. And Woody's like, you're a toy, you're a toy. And towards the end of the movie, Buzz finally realizes he's a toy and he's sad and depressed because he's just a toy. But then he says, look at your foot. If you remember early in the movie, Andy, the little boy in there, wrote his name upon Woody's foot. Upon Buzz's foot. And Buzz wasn't just any toy. He was Andy's toy. How do you know he was Andy's toy? Because Andy had wrote his name on his foot. He had marked him as his very own. That's baptism. God marks us as his very own. These sacraments of communion and baptism are beautiful gifts that God has given to us to show us that we are his, that he is ours, and that he loves us. May we never forget the gracious and beautiful love of our Savior. Let us pray.